Welcome to New Life Downtown Sunday School, February 9th, 2014. Uh, this is our second week of the Psalms, and last week we talked about some big ideas, if you remember. Today we're going to get more right into the, oh that's cool, I didn't know you had little, little eating tables. Gosh, I don't get one of those. That's pretty cool. I'm sure that's what the, why the school put them there was for food, right? Uh, no doubt. So we're going to spend about the first 10, 15 minutes talking about Hebrew poetry and then the balance of the time talking about one of the more dramatic genres within the book of Psalms, which we call the laments. So let's begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful this morning that your mercies are new every day. Lord, at 11.59 last night, we needed new mercy, and today we wake up reminded of your grace and your mercy new in our lives. Teach us through your word, encourage us, help us as we seek to connect with one another in Christian community. And we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen. So when you think of poetry, I talked about this very briefly last week, we think of rhyming words. Now, I'm, I'm a musician. A lot of you don't know that. It's kind of a well-kept secret because my son, Eric, is so much better musician than me. But I was a worship pastor years ago, and I was, believe it or not, I was in a Christian rock band back in the 70s. A little longer hair, what have you. I played guitar, keyboard, uh, and what most people don't know, actually, I was a bluegrass banjo player, too. But uh, I remember sitting, one of the things I could never do was write songs. I can play them, but I'm just not a good songwriter. And we had some guys on a big church I was on staff at. We had some guys that were exceptional songwriters. You may have heard of some of them. Bob Bennett is a close friend of mine. Some of you that are older might remember he was, 1982, he was Contemporary Christian Music's uh, Musician of the Year. And uh, incredible songwriter. But I just couldn't write songs. But I remember sometimes being in little sessions where some of these guys were writing songs. And they would, you know, they would say, you know, you are the king, king, bing, king, ding, ming, ving, jing, zing, you know, and try to rhyme the word, you know, and it, it, by the time you get to zing, then you realize maybe you have to change the first word because it's not working. Sing and king, by the way, always work, so that one's easy. So when you, when you have to put in xylophone, then it kind of throws off the rhyming issue. Hebrew poetry doesn't rhyme sounds, it rhymes thoughts. And so it wasn't so much the, rhyming in the way that we think, but rhyming the idea. And so we call it parallelism. And we're going to spend a few minutes. But first, I just want to just touch on, by the way, you like those uh, rabbis kind of, you know, cutting it loose there. Title and structure. The titles of the Psalms that you see over some of the Psalms, and then those words that describe it like, a psalm of David or a psalm this or that. Those are called superscriptions. We spoke about that last week as well. Super just means above and describe means to write. They're not inspired in the sense that they probably weren't there at the original pinning of the psalm, but they've been there for thousands of years. And so they help us understand how these psalms were used in worship. About a third to half of the psalms have superscriptions or have some kind of title on top of them. Sometimes you'll see an odd superscription because it'll say a maskil, for example, M-A-S-K-I-L, or to the tune of, and it'll have some word. What we think, and of course nobody was there then, but what we think is that in the, in the temple worship, 
They had full-time musicians, Levites who were skilled in the instruments. But they didn't have the level of musicianship that we have seen since, say, the Renaissance. And so what we think probably happened was musicians probably had kind of a collection of maybe, and I'm just totally guessing here, maybe a dozen tunes, you know, maybe 10, 15 main tunes that they knew. And then they would put the Psalms into those different tunes. And some of the Psalms, the writer would have a, have a suggestion. This goes well with the one to the tune of, you know, and so that's probably how they did it. And that would make sense uh, to us, but it's, it, it may or may not be that way. So parallelism is the way that Hebrew poetry goes. And so we're going to look at basically, real quickly, the four kinds of parallelism. And I want you to take your Bible, and I want you just to kind of have it ready in the Psalms, because I'm going to ask some of you to find some examples for me. But I'm going to quickly go over the four types of parallelism, and then we'll look at some examples on the screen of some passages. Okay? The first one we call synonymous parallelism. Synonymous means what? Same thing. That's where you have a line, and the second line says the same thing, but maybe using different words or a different order. It's very simple. Then you have antithetic parallelism, which anti means the opposite. And that's where the first line says something, and the second line contrasts with or negates the thought or the meaning of the first line. Again, we'll, we'll look at some of these examples. You have uh, them written down in your, in your uh, notes, so don't worry about writing it down. A third one is what we call synthetic parallelism. And, you know, theologians made up these titles. But the idea in synthetic parallelism is the form is parallelism, but rather than repeat or negate, the second line adds to. It, it compounds or adds to the original thought. And then finally, the last one goes to the letter chi in the Greek. In the Greek alphabet, what we would call an X is a chi, and it's the CH sound. So Christian, or Christ, which Christos, which meant Messiah, starts with the letter chi, or the X. And so they call it chiasm, and, and again, we'll show that uh, real clearly in just a moment, where basically you have this line here, then you have this line and this line, and then this line down here, and the two outside ones match, and the two inside ones match. And it's just the form of Hebrew poetry. So let's look at a few examples. Synonymous parallelism. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Now, here's the problem with not understanding about parallelism. Some well-meaning believers try to do word studies and try to make hay, if you will, out of the differences. Say They'll, they'll do a whole Bible study on the difference between rebuke and discipline, you know, or, or something of that nature. That's not the point of it. The point of it is, is saying the same thing slightly different. So in understanding parallelism and understanding the way the Psalms are written, there's a word we mentioned last week. I think I mentioned it. It's one of those theological terms that's kind of silly. It looks like pericope, P-E-R-I-C-O-P-E. But it's pronounced pericope. And what a pericope is, is the smallest complete unit of thought that the scriptures can be deduced to. 
In other words, you can't go any smaller or you completely lose context. Now, in giving you an example of why this is important, in the book of Proverbs, the pericope, the smallest unit of the thought, sometimes is what we would see as one verse. You know, because it just makes a, st- a standalone statement. In the Psalms, the pericope, the smallest unit of thought, is the whole psalm. You really can't divide it up because remember, they weren't written in chapter and verse divisions. And so you have to look at the whole thing. Now, in a historical narrative like the book of Joshua, a quote pericope might be the whole chapter because you've got to know the whole story line before you go to one verse and start tearing it apart. That's the challenge of what we call, some people call verse-by-verse teaching, is your verse may not, may be incomplete in the thought because it doesn't go all the way to the end to encompass the whole unit of thought or story. So in the Psalms, you don't want to do a Bible study on the difference between anger and wrath or rebuke and discipline because it's saying the same thing. Psalm 10.1, why, O Lord, do you stand afar off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Now, this is a psalm of lament. And it's, we'll talk about laments the second half of, of our little time today. And usually the opening of a lament gives the complaint. And here the complaint is said in two ways. Why, O oh Lord, do you stand off, afar off? And why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? Why, O oh Lord? The laments are, how long, O oh Lord? When, O oh Lord? The laments are those questions that we always have. Why, when, how long? When is it going to change, Lord? Why does this happen? And how long is it going to continue? You know, isn't that, isn't that what comes out of most people's lips? Um, uh, dear friends of mine, we've been so delighted that you guys are here. Dr. Joe and Melissa Hammock and Joe and your practice all these years. I'm sure you've heard so many clients say, why, how long, and when? You know, <laughs> mostly, yeah, mostly how to pronounce pericope. That's probably the, the most important thing in, in serious mental health. Uh, uh, you know, actually, there's some question about theologians and mental health in general, but that's an entirely different discussion. Uh, why do we feel this need to obfuscate things that you already knew and turn them into fancy words that you don't know so that we can then teach you the meaning of the fancy word, which is in fact something you already knew, but you feel smarter because you now know a fancy word for the thing that you already knew. Come to seminary, every one of you. We'll, we'll change your life. Uh, <laughs> the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Thought one, thought two. The same thing. It just says it a little different. Why is the psalmist bothering to repeat himself? Because it's poetry. And what's the purpose of poetry? There's not a right answer on this one. Why do we have the genre called poetry? What are some of the... Why poetry? What's that? Fresh. Fresh? To woo women. To woo women. <laughs> oh, there you go. Um, actually, not. Creativity. Hey, Lee, good to see you. Um, expand your thinking. Yeah, it taps into the human condition. It inspires. It connects emotionally. Poetry does stuff that narrative and prose don't. Right? That's why we love music. That's why uh, the, the power of poetry is that it moves us. It doesn't just inform us. So why parallelism? Because it helps move us. We, we get it. 
we understand why, O oh Lord, do you stand afar off is the question. So why is he wasting words to repeat himself? Because in the parallelism, why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? It just seems to agitate us just a little more. And that's the purpose of poetry, isn't it? And the poetic books of the Bible bear that out. Okay, if you're looking in your Bible, would you, in the book of Psalms, would somebody look for a verse that looks like synonymous parallelism, where the first line and the second line says the same thing but slightly different? Just anybody. You, almost every page and every psalm, that's the most common kind of parallelism. You should be able to find it. Somebody, uh, yeah, what's your name? Hi, Julie. Read it. Where is it at? Read it. There you are. It, it, it's, it's, it's great. It's easy. There was, you had one. Knowing this, you will now read the Psalms and go, oh, there's one, there's one, there's one, there's one. And you'll see how easy it is to, to distinguish this. Antithetical parallelism is just as easy because it's the opposite. Okay? Psalm 1-6. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous but the way of the wicked will perish. Now, that doesn't say the same thing. In fact, it says the opposite thing. But in saying the opposite thing, doesn't it really say the same thing? The second one reinforces the truth of the first one, even though it's saying the opposite. Remember Sesame Street? One of these things is not like the other. (laughs) They collapse and fall, but we arise and stand upright. Upright. For the evildoer shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. Somebody try to find, in just flipping through the Psalms, try to find a, an antithetic parallelism verse. They're a little less frequent, but they are in there. Just kind of look through. Usually the word but is the, you can kind of identify that at the beginning of the sentence. Nevertheless, but yet... Sometimes the word yet will, will tell you that it's, it's contrasting. Hello, Brooke. They're spying on me to make sure, you know, this is worth doing, I think. No. Anybody find a negative, uh, a negative, I'm sorry, an antithetic? Yes, sir. What's your first name? Tom. Very good one. Very good one. And the but is the, 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 the kind of the pivot there. He promises this, he, the lonely he puts in family, but the rebellious, the ones who are not submitted to Yahweh, aren't going to have the same end. So that one's easy to understand, isn't it? It's pretty simple. Synthetic parallelism is a little tougher, and I wouldn't overly worry about it. I just want to expose you to it. It's where the first line makes a statement, and the second line... It's parallelism, but it kind of adds to the thought rather than say the exact same thing. Yes, the Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its increase. It's kind of the, 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 you know, the next step, if you will. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of this pasture. It takes it into this metaphor and it just kind of adds to it. When I teach, and I've, in the past I've taught courses on the Psalms, and the student, my students typically have the most difficulty identifying synthetic parallelism. And, and that's okay, because I actually have some difficulty without 
books and resources as well. But it is what we call that kind of parallelism that doesn't fit neatly in those first two categories. And then there's this last one, which introverted or chiasm parallelism. Think of that chi, A-B-B-A, Abba. Oh, sheesh, there we go. Uh, Dancing queen. Okay. Uh, Last weekend, um, for my wife's birthday, we were at the, uh, well, it was a week ago, Friday, we were at the Buell Theater in in Denver watching uh, a very high-energy live performance of Mamma Mia. Uh, It was fun. (laughs) It was a lot of enthusiasm. Uh, Abba. We have escaped like a bird from the snare of the fowler. I blew it on the uh, highlighting here. The snare is broken, should be white also. And we have escaped. See how the first line and the last line are parallel? And then the two middle lines are parallel? A, B, B, A. You you see that? So if you were to, you could put the first two here and the other two middle ones there and draw an X between them, and that's where they get that chiasm thing. Uh, If you were structuring or... I know this will cause nightmares for some of you. Remember junior high English classes and diagramming sentences? Do they do that anymore? I hope. Do they? Good. Okay. I never learned what a participle was till I had to take New Testament Greek because I realized I would never learn Greek participles because I didn't really understand what an English participle was. And so it is good to know those things if you want to talk good. <laughs> Yeah, where where is that from? Uh, Preposition is a bad thing to end a sentence with. Okay, and then just a couple of other additional literary devices. One real common one in Hebrew, and this is a memory trigger, is an alphabetical arrangement, uh, sometimes adopted for the purpose of connecting clauses or sentences. Many of them have this, but Psalm 119 is the most famous because... Each of those sections, there's as many sections as there are letters in the Hebrew alphabet. And the first word of each of those sections starts with that word. So in English, it would be like, all the earth shall praise him. Uh, Above all things, he is king. And the third one would be, uh, ask and you shall receive. You follow what I'm saying? And then the second set of verses would be, you know, because the Lord is great, uh, bold and we come to him. And so why would they take the time to do that? Yes. Yes, in memorization. Because you hear stories about um, rabbis who have, you know, two-thirds of the Old Testament memorized. A lot of it is because they use these kinds of devices. You know, every, every good boy does fine. You know, those kinds of little mnemonic devices, they call them to trigger memory, to make it sticky. And so uh, there's a, uh, a show uh, that we, we've enjoyed. Uh, it's, I, I love the original Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. I've read all of Sherlock Holmes. Have you seen that newer Sherlock? I find that totally fascinating. Him in the modern era, I just, we've really enjoyed that show. And the pictures and the way that he connects and makes things sticky for his... his uh, freakishly brilliant mind is just a fascinating it makes for a fascinating drama for for us but then again we're weird so uh additional literary devices the repetition of the same verse uh, or of some emphatic uh expression turn to psalm 136 
real quick. See if you can find the repetition in Psalm 136. Anybody? What's, what's the repetition line? Somebody say it out loud. His love endures forever. And that's that word chesed. His covenant loyalty endures forever. Now, why does he waste words on that? And his love endures forever. And his love endures forever. And his love endures forever. And it's a long psalm. The professor in my, the, the psalms class that I took many, many years ago, I always remembered the, this and it helped me. The, and I noticed this is a predominantly white crowd this morning, uh, which is unfortunate, I suppose, on a lot of levels. But uh, there is a very distinct genre of or public speaking and communication and preaching that the African-American church has that's very different from the white church, right? And one of the things in the African-American genre of oratory and speaking is what some people call cadence, you know, and repetition, where the same... What is Martin Luther's repetition in his... Martin Luther King's repetition in his famous speech in D.C.? I have a dream. That's what he keeps coming back to. I have a dream! And he talks. I have a dream! Now, what, does he think you're going to forget the main point? No. That repetition, and if you've listened to the speech, and you should, again, uh, it's, I'm teaching a class on Tuesday nights for King's University right now. On, it's called Preaching Practicum. And we met the night after uh, Martin Luther King Day, and I played the 17-minute speech because... Rarely do people actually listen to it. It's an amazing speech. And even though they knew where it was going, the students found themselves ready to shout out and inspired at the end when Dr. King is, I have a dream! Right? Because it did what it's supposed to do. Poetry is supposed to raise us above where we are, inspire us, move us. And repetition can do that. Repetition in Hebrew, the Hebrew language, is how they have an exclamation point. They don't have the exclamation point imperative that we do in English structure. They repeat. Because repetition becomes the imperative or the exclamation. This is important because I'm repeating it. Emblematic parallelism, that just think metaphor. The first line makes a literal statement or thought and the second line uses a metaphor or a simile to illustrate it or vice versa. As the deer panteth for the water, so my soul longeth after thee. Of course, that one's in the reverse order. And that's a simile because it says as, and it assumes that you, it doesn't assume that you know it's a comparison. It tells you it's a comparison. A metaphor, remember, doesn't use like or as, and you have to figure out that the Lord is, the Lord is not actually my shepherd. The Lord is God. But we're using this metaphor of the Lord is my shepherd. And then gradation is when the thought of one verse is resumed in the other. Um, I lift my eyes up unto the heavens whereas, where my help comes from. My help comes from you, the maker of heaven and earth. Every one just kind of steps on the, you know, on the shoulders of the next, as it were. And then finally, and we're just about done with this so we can talk about the laments. Stair-step parallelism where the poet repeats a group of two or three words in successive lines, and three is the magic number in Hebrew. Three was the most uh, expressive, uh, or, uh, the most exclamation you can make is a repetition of three. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. 
who was and is and is to come, is three repetitions of three, which is like, uh, that's a, a superlative superlative, if you will, you know? That's amazingly, positively, absolutely, incredibly, gigantically, awesomely saying this point. Again, why would they use that kind of language when sometimes it's not even correct in the Hebrew grammar? Because it, it raises you up. It, it lifts you up. And that's the point of poetry, isn't it? But sometimes it doesn't lift you up. Sometimes you read it and it seems to connect with when you're down. And the lament psalms, in some ways, are my favorite psalms. And it's not because I enjoy them. It's because they remind me that God wants relationship with me even when I'm in those moments in my life where I feel as though nothing's going to work out and everything's terrible. Why, O oh Lord? How long, O oh Lord? When, O oh Lord? And hasn't everybody in this room been in that, that setting? Can you think of a, of a lament psalm? We use one a lot of times on Sunday mornings. Which one is that? We do it before communion. Psalm 51. When David is just pouring out his grief to the Lord, having been busted by Nathan the prophet and the whole thing with Bathsheba. And so these lament psalms give voice to those moments that we are so discouraged. And we're going to look at a couple of lament psalms. But first, why would we pray? Because the, the, the book of Psalms is not just a song book. It was also the prayer book of the people of Israel. And I suspect most of the laments were probably corporate prayer more than they were singing. You know, I mean, it's like, everybody, how long, oh Lord, will you hide your face from me? Not just the ladies, you know, I mean... It probably didn't work that way. But it could have been the public corporate prayer. How long, O oh Lord, will you hide your face from us? And so why pray the, the laments? Well, they, Melissa's comment, they take us deep down into our own hearts. Religious or spiritual people tend to deny the rawness or the reality of their own feelings. Oh, gosh. Church is... We, we in the Jesus movement days, and it's probably not, I think it's a bit better today, but everything was praise the Lord. You know, praise the Lord. How you doing today? Praise the Lord, brother. No, I didn't ask you to say praise the Lord. I asked how you were doing. Oh, praise the Lord. Church says everything's got to be great. How you doing? Praise the Lord, brother. And then you've got the other side, you know, the, the uh, Jerry Springer show where I'm mad and I'm going to tell everybody about it. You know, and there's that, that vent and just, isn't there somewhere between those two extremes a godly biblical way of dealing with these? And maybe it's through the lament psalms. The psalmists, neither, they neither suppress nor vent the feelings. They pray their feelings and they pray them. They take, I love this. This is, by the way, I stole number three completely, so I'll give credit. Tim Keller from Redeemer Presbyterian Church in Manhattan, in New York City. Great guy, great church. Uh, he's written a number of just wonderful books. Tim did a teaching on the Lament Psalms, and this is, I just borrowed this phrase right from him. I love this. He says, they neither vent them nor suppress them. They pray them, taking those emotions into God's presence until they either change or the psalmist understands them. And I love that. That's why we, we, we 
have these psalms. And so then, the final one before we look at the psalms a bit. The lament psalms force us to deal with God as he is, not as we wish he was. Left to ourselves, we will pray to a God who speaks what we like hearing. Left to ourselves, we will pray only to that part of God that we somewhat understand, but it is critical that we speak to God who speaks to us, and the Psalms train us in that conversation. Here's a misquoted scripture. God will never give you anything more than you can bear. How many of you have heard somebody say that? Is that true? No. No, it's not true. Well, no, 1 Corinthians, no, Corinthians says there will be no temptation that will overtake you more than you can bear, and God will always provide what? A way out, a way of escape for temptation. You can't say, I couldn't help it, I had to have the affair. I couldn't help it, I had to rob the bank. I couldn't help it, I had to betray that confidence. You can never say that because God will always provide a way of escape out of temptation to, to commit some kind of sin. But the Bible doesn't say anywhere that God will never give you more than you can bear. Because how many of you have known people that have lost their health, lost their family, had tragedies? What about Horatio Spafford back a hundred years ago who lost his wife and his two daughters, lost at sea because of a a shipwreck? And then he going... uh, over to England where they were on their way to make final arrangements when the captain comes to his uh, stateroom and says, Mr. Spafford, would you come out on the bridge? And he said, this, according to our, our instruments, this is approximately where the ship went down and where your wife and your two daughters perished in the sea. And Spafford spent some time there. I cannot even imagine the grief he must have felt. And then he went back to his stateroom and he penned uh, what we know is that beautiful hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. Though, you know, though the billows, the billows of, of that grief overtake me. You can imagine him communicating that as he sees the, the waves and imagines the waves taking the ship. He never promises he won't give you more than you can handle. What he promises is that he'll be with us through it and that ultimately he will prevail. And so they train us in that conversation. Let's look at the Lament Psalms, out of the depths. The Psalms, the Lament Psalms are usually found in in three movements. There's, first of all, there's individual laments and community laments. What would an individual lament be? Like David's Psalm 51, I, me. Now the challenge with David's Psalm, and I mentioned this, those of you who were here last week, is in Psalm 51, it begins and says, to the choir master. So this personal, individual psalm becomes a community lament for the whole uh, people of Israel. But you're right. The, the individual psalms are I, me. And the community psalms are us and we. Lord, when are we going to get out of exile and make it back to the land of milk and honey? The typical structure, sometimes there's an, what's an invocation? I have to do, I've done that a few times in my pastoral career. Uh, They would ask me to come like to the city council meeting and give an invocation. That's kind of like a brief little nice thing you say about God (laughs) at the beginning. 
And that's about all it is when you're city council. It's like, and we bow our heads and dear God, you know. And sometimes there's a little brief invocation, kind of invoking God's presence. But most of the time, it goes right to the complaint. How long, O Lord? Why are you so far from me? Why are my enemies prospering and I am in this desperate state? So it starts with this complaint and then transitions to the bucket list. I want you to do this and this. And, I'll, and while you're at it, break their teeth in their mouth. You know, I love how, you know, I, I'm going to ask you for these things and give you a little bit of suggestion on how you do it. Okay? And then finally, there's at the end of my list, <sighs> there's often in the conclusion what we call a vow of faith. So we're going to look at Psalm 13. By the way, the setting is almost always a crisis. It's some kind of a crisis. Oh, Lord. Oh, Lord. I am... Um, you know, I've lived in this town since 1984. And uh, we came down from Denver to plant a vineyard church. And some of the places, I mean, like... Uh, the new St. Francis Hospital, you know, St. Francis Medical Center. I've been in there a few times. Uh, uh, the new Memorial North. Both of our grandsons were born there. So I have a little experience. But Penrose, Maine, I get choked up when I go in there. Because I have been at the bedside of dozens of people who have died in that hospital. And I can tell you the stories. And I remember one of them, a young man in our church who... Um, 30, 31 years old or 32, and his wife was eight and a half months pregnant with their second child, and he got um, uh, spinal meningitis and went from healthy to dead in 12 hours. And I remember the chaplain opened up the, the, the little sanctuary for, there were so many people from our church, there was probably over 100 that ended up there, while Linda and I were uh, with the, the, the young wife and, uh, and his parents, uh, and going back and forth and then saying goodbye, you know, and, and I just, I walk by that chapel to this day and I get choked up because I, I've, and I, every time I go by that chapel, I look in there and I'll see one or two or three people, some of them be kneeling, and I know they're praying their equivalent of a lament psalm. Oh God, why? Oh God, please. Oh God. There's nothing that brings us I think more clearly in the face of God than crisis. And we are the people who know God and we shouldn't shy away from that. Don't go alongside that person and say, oh, it'll all get better. God won't give you any more than you can bear. That is not what they need to hear. What they need to hear is maybe you open the Psalms and read it in prayer. Just read it out loud and then just put your arm around them and say, Lord, be with my brother, my sister right now. That's bringing their heart and their emotions into the presence of God in the midst of these psalms. Because they know you don't have a magic answer. They're not dumb. They know you can't fix it. But they also know, and they're hoping and praying that there's a God who is sovereign and is in control. So Psalm 13, we have the complaint. How long? How long, O oh Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all day long? How long shall my enemies be exalted over me? 
Wouldn't you say it's true that we could take every one of those sentences and find a Bible verse that says the opposite of that? What about that first one? How long will you forget me forever? You think of a Bible verse? Yeah, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. How long will you hide your face from me? The Lord is near to those who draw near to the Lord. He'll draw near to you. How long must I take counsel? My soul have sorrow in my heart all day long, and the joy of the Lord shall be your strength. How long shall my enemies be exalted over me? You know, one shall take to flight 10,000. I mean, all these passages that seem to say the opposite of this. This isn't, remember, we got to look at the, the direction of the dialogue. This isn't God speaking to us. Now, is this God's word? Is every word in this God's word to me directly? No. I even have, I have pagan kings. I have Satan being quoted. I have bad advice from Job's friends. And I have the real, honest, raw emotions of someone like this psalmist crying out to God. In a general sense, it's the word of God, but not every verse in it is God speaking to me. And in this case, God is not speaking to me. I'm speaking to God. So we have the complaint followed by the petition, the bucket list. Consider and answer me, O Lord, my God. Light up my eyes. Now, light up my eyes. That's, what do you think he's saying there? I'm sorry? Give me the ability to see. That's right. What? Yeah, to see it maybe from your perspective. Allow me to see it because I'm not seeing it right now. Help me to have, I think of, of uh, Ephesians, the eyes of my understanding being opened. Lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemies say I have prevailed over them. Lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. In, those, in the laments, there's a lot of enemy language. Yeah, Steve. Oh, I'm sorry you were showing me Thank you. He's my timekeeper. I said, show me when there's five minutes. And then he raises his hand and I call on him. Talk about an idiot. Man, I am, I am with it. <laughs> and then we move to this vow of faith. And what's the first word? But! I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. If you want, if you want to look there for a minute. It's all future tense. In past tense, I have trusted, and I will rejoice. It's not present. I have, and I will. I'm not right now, but I have, and I will. And isn't that the answer for when we're... Is, can you see the, 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 the flow here? He doesn't go on Dr. Phil and vent, and he doesn't just push it down and say, Praise the Lord, brother, how are you doing? He makes the, the complaint. He says, I need you to do this. And he ends by saying, I have trusted you in the past and I will praise you in the future. Right now is a little sketchy. <laughs> but I know about this and I'm believing for this. And isn't that a great place to be in? So let's turn. Let, let's, let me look at, let me find one. Um, I think in the 30s. I think Psalm... Uh, 31, I think, or let's see, Psalm 
No, 30. Um, 30? I'm yeah, 31. Turn to Psalm 31. It's a long one. But uh, you'll see the same idea here. This one seems to have an invocation first. Psalm 31. In you, O Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never be put to shame. Deliver me in your righteousness. Turn your ear. Come quickly to my rescue. Be the rock of, uh, refuge of strong fortress. Since you're strong and take hope, all you who hope in the Lord... I learned something. How many of you have lost? I'm sure the answer is everyone. How many of you have gone through the death of a loved one in your life? Yeah, everybody. I, my father died when I was 25, and very unexpected. And I remember trying to talk myself through the, you know, Cooper Roth's five stages of grief. It's like, okay, I've had the anger and the denial, you know, and I'm kind of depressed, and I'm bargaining, and, you know, and kind of just tick them off. What did you learn about those stages of grief? Were they real regimented and orderly? No. Did you find you kind of bounce back and forth? And, you know, you kind of, I'm accepting, now I'm depressed again, now I'm in denial again, now I'm angry again, now I'm trying to accept it, but I'm, right? You just kind of back and forth. That's the same thing you see here. It's like, even in the vow of faith, I, yet I'll praise the Lord, but he's really ticking me off, and I wish you would smite my enemies, oh Lord. But I just trust that God, doesn't that sound, on the one hand, maybe a little bipolar, but on the other hand, a lot like you and me? So the psalm, the lament psalms give us this remarkable format and remarkable reservoir of places to go and pray out loud when you, when you feel like you have the question, why, O oh Lord, how long, O oh Lord, when, O oh Lord? A couple minutes left. I know we're just blasting through information here. A couple of questions about the laments or the, yes, what's your name? Hi, Andy. Okay. You know, that's very good. The enemy language. I actually dumped a slide that I'll bring up next week first time that's a whole thing on the enemies. So I will, I will do that next week because it's too long a question for the, one minute. No. The laments are all kind of woven through. In fact, all of them are. Uh, you'll find a few, like the ascent psalms seem to be collected together, and then some of the praise psalms at the end. But other than that, they're just kind of hit and miss. Hey, the boss has shown up. It's 9.45. Let's pray. Get out of here so that the Sunday school kids won't be upset at me like they were last week because nobody wants third and fourth graders upset at you. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for this wonderful time in your word. Lord, where I have not covered something adequately, which is quite probable. Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit will just put within us such a desire to pray and to meditate and to work through these psalms in a way that deepens our trust.